there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. of the responsibility conferred by your trust, I accept your nomination for the Presidency of the United States. I... Ronald Reagan was nominated for president by the Republicans at their convention in Detroit. Bjorn Borg beat John McEnroe at Wimbledon. Billy Joel's glass houses sat on top of the charts and the U.S. sat out the Moscow Olympics officially. On top of all of that, it was a huge month for movies in July of 1980. Good intro, Drew. What's up, Scott? I am so happy that we have this month to talk about because it is filled with genuinely great movies. And it's a real pleasure. July of 1980 was kind of awesome. You know, it's not awesome, Drew. Uh, that we pulled so many boners. How did we, and by we, I mean you. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. How did we pull so many mistakes so far? Well, a lot of a lot of these movies that, um, and we're going to do a little catch up here of some of these films. A lot of these are smaller movies, and they're hard films to pin down uh, release dates on. But I wanted to go back and make sure that we get these movies covered because I I don't want to miss something. So we're going to do these really quickly. We're just going to go through and talk about them. There's a couple that I want to kind of blow out because I think they're really great films. Uh, the first one is Night of the Juggler, which uh, is this filthy little thriller that you can find on YouTube if you're curious about it, in which James Brolin is a cop whose daughter gets kidnapped by mistake. Uh, the kidnapper thinks she's a rich kid. It's kind of high and low, but it's high and low via absolutely seedy late 70s thriller. And uh, the guy who directed this is the same guy who went on to direct Turbulence later, the Ray Liotta film. Uh, have you ever seen this one, Scott? I have not seen Night of the Juggler. The title is familiar to me, for so, and it sticks out because it's a weird title. It is. Uh, and it's not about a circus, right? No. Cliff Gorman is the bad guy, and he's scenery-chewing, post-dirty Harry psycho who is terrorizing the city, and he's going to kill this hostage, maybe. And he just does terrible shit all the way through the movie. Where, where is the juggling come in? I think that it's a reference to the fact that the cop is kind of keeping everything up in the air while he's trying to find his daughter. All right, well, that's a stupid title. The next one, and that, that was May of 1980. Also, in either May or June of 1980, was The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood, which was the third in the trilogy, and it is a very weird meta movie because it's about when she wrote her book and sold it to film and then came to Hollywood while they were making The Happy Hooker, the first film in the trilogy. I've never seen any of The Happy Hooker. This one is this one is by far the um, the, the most overt comedy of the three. I, they're all comedies, but this one is making fun of Hollywood and making fun of how everybody in Hollywood is also a prostitute 
and Adam West is in it and a ton of character actors, you know, comedy character actors show up in it. It's actually not a bad little comedy, uh, especially to give you a look at how financing worked in the world of Hollywood sort of in the early 80s. It kind of serves as an accurate picture of that. I have seen the next omission. Ah, now see, I haven't. It is a deservedly obscure. Joseph Cotton stars in The Hearse. I know The Car. I know The Van. I know some of the other car-related horror films from this time, but I've never seen The Hearse. Yeah, it's very dry, not particularly eventful. It's going for like kind of an old-school ghost vibe. It's kind of atmospheric. Some of the shots in a funeral home, funeral home, funeral home, uh, are pretty good, uh, but not much I remember about it. The guy who directed it, we're going to see him several more times during the 80s because he directed a lot of fairly high profile, trashy exploitation films. His name is George Bowers. He was an editor first and foremost, but we'll see him again. We'll get to him later in the podcast. Uh, The next omission is a very good film. Drew, what do you think of this one? I'm a little flattened that we missed this, but I was looking at how it was released, and it's one of those movies. It played a couple of festivals. It leaked into theaters, and as a result, we missed the April 1980 release of Return of the Secaucus 7 by John Sayles. Genre fans will, of course, know John Sayles because he wrote lots of cool horror movies in this era, like um, Piranha and Alligator and The Howling. But he, he really cut his teeth on this very earnest, very heartfelt, funny prototype for the big chill in a way it's a strange title return of the Secaucus 7 Secaucus being a city in new jersey but uh i think it's great it's funny that we caught up to it this week because uh the movie that he wrote that you mentioned alligator that we'll cover later this week is the movie that financed return of the Secaucus 7 he took everything he earned on alligator and put it right back into this film I mean, he was a guy who very early divided things between the jobs he did for money and the jobs he did because he really believed in the film. And he had he had two very distinct careers, which makes him very interesting, I think. This next one is a movie that I adore and is almost fitting that we missed it because this was a movie that got leaked into theaters and the distributor didn't know what to do with it. And they kind of released it and then they pulled it and then they released it again and then they tried to figure out what to do with it. It's a movie called Over the Edge, directed by Jonathan Kaplan. And it stars a young Matt Dillon. It is written by Tim Hunter, who also wrote River's Edge. And in my opinion, like River's Edge, it is one of the great movies about disaffected youth. Yeah, occasionally you'll see a studio film that is willing to like really delve into the dark areas of young adulthood and suicide and depression. Um, And River's Edge is obviously one uh, permanent record. It's another one. Over the Edge is a, a sobering film if you see it like I did when I was 15. Well, it's great. It's just about one of these pre-planned communities and the kids are just bored and there's nothing for them to do. And everything is so snapped into place and, and sort of Lego that when they break, they go nuts. And it is about that moment when the kids just kind of go crazy in this neighborhood. So good. So well made. Um, and then finally, the last film that we missed uh, was from February of 1980. And this is a pretty well-known exploitation title. If you know black exploitation at all, chances are you know both Jamafanaka, who is the filmmaker here, and this film, Penitentiary. When you're, you know, a teenager, you take this stuff as just basic action, and then you get a little, little older and you look back over, especially the, the the better black exploitation films, and you're like, oh, these weren't just fun or funny or salacious. These were made by filmmakers who were trying to make a point. Yeah, I, I think Fanaka is one of those guys. He was really trying to do something. And this this movie, it, it is just a prison movie. It's about a guy who gets caught in a shitty situation. He gets 
thrown in jail and it's about him surviving in jail and then eventually getting out. And it is about how racist the system is, about how it is designed to break you. Um, there's some really progressive trans stuff in here. There is a lot of stuff that is really confrontational about race and especially race in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and on top of it all, Leon Isaac Kennedy is just a badass in the movie. There's a phenomenal early fight in there. It's the first night when he's in the penitentiary and he has to decide like how he's going to be with his cellmate. The fight between them is amazing. It's a great hand-to-hand, whatever you have to do to stay alive fight, and it is really harrowing. All right, well, listen, those are the ones we missed. I am so sorry for each one of those, and I'm glad that we went back and covered them. Some of them are absolutely worth you tracking them down, but they're all worth mentioning. Um, Some of the movies that came out this month we already discussed because we had the dates wrong, including Middle Age, Crazy, Hangar 18, and How to Beat the High Cost of Living. Eh. So now that we have those three out of the way and we've caught up on everything, it's time to jump in. And we are going to start this month with an undisputed comedy classic on the same level as the Blues Brothers, which we did last month. And this is a film that I think is more beloved in some ways. It was a bigger mainstream hit at the time, and it is shaggy and imperfect, and I adore it. Let's talk about Caddyshack. For me, growing up, the four classics were Animal House, Blues Brothers, Caddyshack, and Stripes. Caddyshack, and to a larger degree, Animal House, which unfortunately we won't be able to cover because it came out in 1978. Caddyshack is a uh, a continuation of the very uh, durable uh, snobs versus slobs format, which is really just a very thin premise on which to hang uh, simple jokes and material for well-known comedians. Caddyshack is pure chaos. It kind of bounces around between a collection of subplots and goofball characters. It doesn't really add up too much in the story department, but gives you just enough of a, a low-key plot to string all the, all the funny people together. It has a great energy. It is gleefully raunchy. It is not embarrassed about it. It is uh, pure fun. Watch Just watch Rodney Dangerfield's performance, and you could just tell that they just wanted to make a fun movie. Well, and this, I mean, this one had a direct impact on me. When I turned 14 and was living in Chattanooga, I lived near a golf course that was the sister course to the uh, Masters course where they play the Masters tournament. It was owned by the same people, designed by the same people. It was called the Honors Course, but it was the private one. I got a job there as a caddy. And the whole reason that I was interested was because of this movie. And I think what they get right is that when you're a caddy, you are the lowest class person possible working at a country club, which is all about snobbery. And there is something great about that friction. Uh, Being a caddy is the perfect way into that world. It's weird that the least successful part of the film is really Danny Noonan and his story. It almost feels perfunctory, like, you know, we need an audience surrogate. So he's the nice kid who's trying to finance his way into college, and he has a couple of uh, speed bumps on the way. It's, again, it's a thin framework on which to hang Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, and the rest. The problem is the pregnancy storyline with Maggie. Every time she shows up in the film, the movie grinds to a halt for her terrible Irish accent. There's two or three scenes where she comes in, just stops the movie cold. Where takes for nothing! 
And then thankfully we move on. And I think they shaved all of that back in post-production. You can tell they cut that movie to the bone. Yeah, it's it seems like uh, it's there just to, you know, represent the impending gr- um, adult responsibilities that are, if he can't go to college, then, oh no, he might get stuck raising his own child, dun-dun. The miracle is that the movie works at all because the movie was a unbelievable mess on set. And it's one of those productions where nobody associated with it thought it was going to cut together once they were finished because none of it seemed like it was working. But what I love about it is that each of the comedians in it, each of the main comic forces, I think is a totally different style. You have Chevy Chase, you have Bill Murray, you have Rodney Dangerfield, and you have Ted Knight. I got to take a moment to just appreciate Ted Knight, who almost always gets undersold when you're talking about this movie. Yep. But I think Ted Knight is terrific in the film. He is the uh, he's like the wealthy dowager in a Three Stooges short. And he is absolutely blustery, befuddled, angry, inept, impotent and hilarious without Ted Knight then it, it kind of plays like three comedians riffing for each other. When you have such a when you have such a great performance and such a great comedic villain, you know, it raises the movie, it raises the stakes immediately. You put him and Dangerfield in a scene together, and Dangerfield is such an attack dog that you put him in that scene and you watch him go after Ted Knight and just go after everybody in the room. Knight has no idea what to do with Dangerfield's energy. And that's what's really wonderful. And the same thing with Chevy Chase. Chase has this great sort of hipster, Valium, doofus haze about him in this movie. And he's so charming and seems to kind of skip across the surface of the film. And you can see how much it irritates Ted Knight that Chevy Chase just gets away with everything. It's wonderful to watch that frustration. And for uh, for SNL fans, it's a nice treat to see uh, Murray and Chase share at least one extended sequence because, as you'd probably know, Murray is who replaced Chevy Chase after he left Saturday Night Live's first season. And they hated each other famously. Like, that return, when Chevy came back to the show, that was a disaster. And they, they basically came to fists on the set of SNL. And so there was never any chance that they were going to get a scene with them together. And yet... The scene in the movie where they did finally put them into that one room together is delightful because Chevy wants out of that room. He is not comfortable around Bill Murray and Bill knows it. And Bill pushes and pokes and prods. And that's what's wonderful. Carl the gardener is doing it accidentally. Bill Murray's doing it on purpose. And the friction that you get in that scene, it's the reason that that is so alive and interesting. You couldn't have done it with any other two performers. It had to be them. And then one more. He's right on top of Cannonball. One last thing I will say, look, I I miss Harold Ramis terribly, but more than that, I miss Doug Kenny. I feel like we got shortchanged. And this is one of the few movies Doug Kenny had his hands on this in Animal House. And I think he would have continued to be such a giant force in comedy. I think he is the National Lampoon Generation's Harris Whittles. He's the guy who, unfortunately, we lost him just as we realized, oh, my God, this guy is next level. Uh, what's interesting about Doug Kenny, who was a great screenwriter, was the editor of National Lampoon. Movie geeks will probably best remember him uh, for his great line in Animal House. He plays Stork, <laughs> and, and they're all frustrated in the in the party room, in the common room, and they're all, and they're all trying to figure out what to do. And Stork, what does Stork say, Drew? Well, what the hell is supposed to do, you moron? <laughs> he is great because he's such a weird goonie bird, and yeah. 
And I think that was that was the thing that Ramis loved about him is that when Doug Kenny wrote the slobs versus snob stuff, that wasn't bullshit. That was real to him. He he was a guy that felt that class friction very acutely, and a lot of his comedy came out of it. Yeah, he died way too young. Uh, I believe he uh, fell off a cliff in yep. Hawaii. Was that yeah. what it was in Hawaii? And it's just one of those tragic things, and it really devastated almost everybody who worked on this film. They loved him. This next one I'm excited about, and uh, and just went back to rewatch. Oh, is this? Uh, didn't you had a good time with Louis Teague's Alligator? It lives fifty feet beneath the streets. It weighs over two thousand pounds. It's killed five people already, and it's about to break out. <laughs> The thing that I love about it is I love the fact that even though this is shamelessly a Jaws ripoff, it is so skillfully made by accident. Like, I get the feeling Louis Teague was just keeping his head above water, shooting as fast as he could. But he really pulled off some little miracle moments in this thing. There's a great moment where they're in the uh, sewer. They're looking for something. And it's uh, Robert Forster and the other guy that he's down there with. And just as the light goes between them, you catch a shot in the background yeah. and it is clear the fucking alligators right behind them. Very and, well timed. Very good. Oh, very well shot creep moments. Oh, it's great. And th- I think in general, they do a good job with them. Yeah. A couple of times using the camera in the place of the alligator to give the uh, viewer the attacker's eye view. A scene that gave me nightmares and I still think is a sick little mini masterpiece is the scene involving uh, some little boys and a swimming pool. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it because anybody who's seen the movie already knows what I'm talking about and anybody who hasn't should experience it in the film. I think some of the special effects towards the end, what are what's clearly miniatures and, and clearly forced perspective still works like a dream. It's well cut. Like he knows, he knows exactly how to sell the illusion and look, some of the effects don't quite nail it, but He's smart enough not to dwell on things that don't work, and he's smart enough to use the shots that do really well. This is the thing. John Sayles, when he was in exploitation mode, did something really well, which is he wrote people first. And then on top of it, knew what the genre was supposed to do and knew what a monster movie was supposed to do and knew what the beats were. And there was never any structural issue with a sales script. You knew that it was going to do what it was supposed to do as a, as a monster movie. But he was really good with people. And I like Robert Forrester's character in this film. I think he's actually really charming. And another thing about sales, that the three screenplays that I mentioned earlier, Piranha and Alligator and The Howling, is that... They're all good, effective horror movies. They're all beholden to other movies, and they all have very strong sense of humor. And it's almost like, look, we know Piranha and Alligator are Jaws-inspired. Everybody knows it. We're not going to apologize for it, and we're going to try to make a fun monster movie. You know, obviously, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma and Joe Dante, those guys are thought of as the film brats, the guys who grew up drunk on movies. And they were the ones that were kind of the proto Tarantinos who started making movies about movies. But I think sales, you have to put him in that same list because he got genre innately. And it is so clear in his exploitation work that he can do this stuff with his eyes closed. Like he knows it inside out. Again, this is one of those guys who I had an opportunity to spend a day with. And the stuff I asked him about was this stuff. City of Hope is a film of his I like a lot. Star, Brother from Another Planet. 
wild thing. The guy made it just you could go on and on. The guy has made dozens of good, good. Or my favorite John Sayles film, maybe by far, is Eight Men Out. My favorite baseball movie. It's beautiful. Great, great movie. But yeah, it was the early exploitation stuff that I asked him about first. Where I'm like, before we do anything, I just got to tell you, man, I fucking love Alligator. Should he? <laughs> yeah, and that's 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 the thing is, I I hope he has the same regard for these that we do because he did good work and it it does hold up um this next one is a uh, a film that kind of exists in two different versions and the version that was in theaters in 1980 is not the movie if you saw it in theaters in 1980 and you didn't like it it's probably because the director didn't like what was in theaters in 1980 either it really wasn't until the last 10 years where we've seen the restoration and we can fully admire sam fuller's the big red one the critics applaud Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One. Richard Schickel of Time Magazine writes, It is a movie in the great tradition of American war dramas. Rona Barrett of ABC TV says, It has all the raging impact of a grenade. And David Anson of Newsweek calls it, A blast of clean air in a summer of muggy, meandering movies. Samuel Fuller's The Big Red One. Rated PG. Probably one of the best, well... We had a lot of good war movies in the 80s, but one of the best war movies of the decade. Yeah, it's an honest war movie. It, it is a war movie written by somebody that not only was at war, but starring somebody that was in that war. And there is a reality to it that really only works in the two hour, 47 minute cut that's existing now, because you need it to be that kind of long movie where you amble and stories take you in this direction and this direction. And there's no real arc to anything. And I think that was a big part of what Fuller was trying to do was make a movie that was like war, where it's just one event after another, but none of it connects in the way that most screenplays do. Yeah. It's a very, um, I, I overuse the word episodic, a journey through the war, and it's not exactly an A to B to C narrative, uh, but it's fantastic. And you know what was very interesting to me as a kid, and I'd never seen it as a kid, but there's somebody in the cast, Mark Hamill. I didn't know, I can give a crap about Lee Marvin or Samuel Fuller when I was 14, but I knew who Mark Hamill was. Well, that's <laughs> the whole reason they cast him, was uh, Carradine actually had his role originally, and then... Sam Fuller moved Carradine over to the other part and cast Hamill because Hamill got them the closing money. Like it was it was right after Star Wars. And he was like, holy shit, I can get the kid from Star Wars. I have to. And it made a difference. Um, and that's one of the best uses of Mark Hamill's uh, sort of box office clout in the 80s was helping get this movie made. If you do check it out, like Drew said, definitely, uh, what's it called? The Restore, I don't, it's not called a director's cut, of course. I think it's called the, the Restoration. Restor Restoration, there you go. Yeah. Big Red One. Underrated when people talk about, like, the best and most effective. I mean, I don't know if it would make a, the top 10 or top 20, but uh, it's, it's up there. It's a surprisingly powerful movie. One of the things that I love about it is Sam Fuller throughout his career. For those of you who don't know Sam Fuller, Sam Fuller was a war photographer. He was a guy that was a pulp writer. He really was the guy that he wrote about in a lot of the film noirs that he wrote. And he went to war. He went to World War II. Uh, this movie is just about the four guys that he was in a squad with and their sergeant. And it just follows them throughout the entire war. Robert Carradine's playing him. It is just a series of, of memories and sort of dreamy individual sequences and really harrowing moments. Lee Marvin, uh, who, again, fought in World War II and was in the Pacific, uh, plays the sergeant. And Lee Marvin is awesome in this. He has so many great, great, great Lee Marvin lines. There's a great scene where a kid steps on a landmine 
And it's a landmine that's not designed to kill you. It's just meant to, as Marvin puts it, castrate you. And the kid goes into this meltdown. Oh, my God, where's my cock? And Marvin starts feeling around and he gets this big smile on his face and holds something up. And he goes, don't worry about it. It's just one of your balls, Smitty, and you can live without it. That's why they give you two. And the relief on the kid's face is so funny. And I think that's what Fuller is doing is he's playing horror and dark comedy and autobiography all at the same time. And I can't really think of many films that feel like it. Uh, if you were going to make a list of 25 directors whose films you could just dig through and see them all, I think Sam Fuller might be on that list. Oh, hell yeah. All right. So this uh, we're going to go from a movie that I cannot recommend highly enough, The Big Red One, to a movie that I would not recommend anybody ever see again. We got to give some context here. In 1980, if you were like, uh, I don't know, 15 to 18 year old uh, the, and you were gonna, you wanted to see something uh, lascivious. A movie theater was pretty much the only place you were gonna see it. I'd like to think that the reason Fifty Shades of Grey got made is pretty much the same reason that we got the Blue Lagoon. Their wooden ship burns at sea, and two children are left to survive alone, lost forever in a tropical paradise. But on one side of this island, they discover a dangerous mystery, dark sinister on the other side they discovered desire columbia pictures presents brooke shields and introducing christopher atkins in the blue lagoon a sensuous story of natural love rated r oof yeah true would you say that like every every year or two we need to have like a bodice ripping kind of torrid love affair of forbidden love in exotic locales or of a controversial nature you know like your french lieutenant's woman and you know but then you get stuff like this which is literally just a hot young boy and a hot young girl and they're trapped on a desert island and we're gonna sit there for 90 minutes and wait for them to get horny that is how it was sold and certainly at 10 that's what my perception of this movie was you had to see this movie because this movie was going to show you what happened when you got to puberty and then things went crazy and it had Brooke Shields. From the director of Grease. Yeah, from the director of Grease. So first, first, can we talk about the fact that America's relationship with Brooke Shields when she was underage was fucking disgusting? Yeah, dude, it was um, creepy. The whole her whole adolescence was a countdown to legal age and in a way that was culturally celebrated. That's what her movies were. And this was the movie that was most heavily sold on that. And what makes this movie above and beyond junk is that it doesn't even have the courage to be that. It's not even the crap that it sells you. It is a Disney movie where nothing happens. The sex in this thing is as clean and as sanitized and as non-threatening and plastic as the threat of the cannibal natives on the other side of the island. It is preposterous. It is racist. If you're duping people into seeing like a 15-year-old girl and a 16-year-old boy have sex, then you know what? I'm sorry, but you deserve to go in and get soft RTs. That's, I'm not saying that I yeah. wanted it to be more explicit, but the movie isn't even what it was sold as. It is a very safe. When you see it now, it'd be PG-13 it, today. I mean, you could maybe even get away with a PG version of this movie. It's borderline Disney live action. Uh, we have not mentioned the boy. Christopher Atkins. Who we will cover again in a couple of years in the, the pirate movie. <laughs> Warning you now. 
this is a kid who who showed up on a wave of hype and certainly this film should have put him on the map if anything was going to because it was it was a big deal that summer you had to see the blue lagoon I always kind of liked christopher atkins not a, yeah, certainly not a great actor but for like you know just young you know handsome kid I, he's likable i always liked him but yeah seriously uh america looking back at you and brooke shields um shame on you shame on all of you there was a sequel Starring Mila Jovovich, and if I'm not mistaken, that was PG-13. Was there a remake? It seems like there, there should be a remake of this movie. Well, this is a remake. This movie was a silent movie, and the book was written in 1900-something, and is a ridiculous piece of pulp. Like, it's one of those properties I can't believe anybody remade. Yeah. I would have loved to have heard the meetings. It must have really all been about, what can we do to get Brooke Shields naked? Can you remember the film that directly stole from this one? That the most well-known Blue Lagoon knockoff? Paradise? Yes. Starring Phoebe Cates and Willie Ames. Correct. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Heck yeah, of course I can. Because it starred Phoebe Cates. Hi, Brad. And we'll talk more about that when we get there, yes. But yeah, Paradise. You know, it's funny, uh, aside from perhaps some very beautiful cinematography and and the two stars are both beautiful to look at but it looks like the swiss family robinson like their house is gilligan's island <laughs> like, god bless the blue lagoon it's like i think it's made for like 15 to 35 year old females who want to see something like that will get them a little hot and bothered but is not explicit and that's cool there's nothing wrong with that except it's a poorly written film. It's just not. <laughs> Except it's, it's a terrible, terrible movie. Yes. Yeah. So there, there we go. We, we've done enough on The Blue Lagoon. Now we're going to move on to a film that I have not seen and you have. And it is called The Earthling. I thought I could never come back here unless I had the world in my pocket. All those wasted years trying to find out who I was. They're Foley. Patrick Foley. Yeah. Thanks. And you're Daly. Sean Daly. Uh, this was kind of a big... Um, this this was that moment where America was first starting to realize that Australia had a film industry and that they could tap into that. And this was a big co-production between Australia and the U.S., and it stars William Holden and Ricky Schroeder. You know, Ricky Schroeder, we talked a little bit about him with uh, Last Flight of Noah's Ark last month. And I think people thought of him as a kid that you could put a pretty heavy emotional load on because of the champ. And he was the kid that will make you cry. That was, I think, what they really wanted to cast him as. This movie, it's weird because I remember seeing it as a kid and I remember seeing it again later. And I had very different reactions to it. As a kid, I found it a little odd and off-putting. Coming back to it when I was a little older, I realized that it's because it's not a film for kids. It's a film that has a kid in it as a main character. It's really about a guy dying of cancer. And the director of the film was dying of cancer while he was making it, didn't tell anybody. So I, I've, I have to assume this is very personal in some ways. But William Holden has cancer. He's from Australia originally. and He comes home and his family's farm is in the middle of nowhere in the outback. And he wants to go into the desert on foot. So that when he gets there, basically, he'll be ready to die. And while he's en route, he finds this kid whose parents have died, Ricky Schroeder. And instead of taking him back, which would be maybe they wouldn't make it, he realizes I have to keep moving forward and the kid's going to have to survive with me. And it's about teaching this kid to take care of himself in the time that he has. 
And it's a good one. It really works. The Australian wilderness is is brutal. And Schroeder and Holden have this really interesting dynamic in the film where it doesn't feel like William Holden was treating him as a young actor. It feels like Holden was treating him as an actor and really pushing the kid. And you see the kid push him back. I like this film. I, I think it's kind of forgotten and it's not really easily available at this point, but it's it's worth tracking down. And especially because William Holden did not have a lot of glory moments towards the end of his career. And this one is a performance that I think got overlooked. For some reason, I kept thinking The Earthling. Of course, I thought it was some kind of a sci-fi film. Sure. Terrible title. It's like Sorcerer. It absolutely yeah. sells you the wrong film. Well, okay. Our next film uh, is uh, one of several concert films, the documentaries that came out throughout the 1980s. And I have not seen it. Uh, I think I've only seen it piecemeal. And it is called No Nukes. In Madison Square Garden and Battery Park on September 19th through the 23rd, 1979, a phenomenal one-time gathering of rock superstars united in a musical show against nuclear power. experience the movie rated pg you know it's pretty easy with these um to call them just a concert film because you know there's only so many ways you can shoot live music it comes down to how you capture an event how well you do it like making the audience feel like they're there and also just is it a historically interesting performance the film opens with Carly Simon and James Taylor doing Mockingbird together and that is as unhip as it sounds <laughs> but but holy shit, they sound great together. Why shouldn't they? They both have they're both great singers. Oh, yeah. And it's an, and this is from that era where, the, you know, they were obviously still entangled. And emotionally, there's so much energy between the two of them. And it's it's a pretty big number. It's pretty unbelievable. Crosby, Stills and Nash shows up. They sound great together. Here's the thing. Here's the biggest knock that I would I would make on the film. And it's just a, a product of its time. This is a seriously white fucking movie. This is white rock writ large so like there's the jackson brown stuff and there's two jackson brown performances running on empty is unbelievable here the thing that the film does best is whoever recorded the sound the sound quality unbelievable they got phenomenal performance recordings so jackson brown sounds this is like giant giant 70s uh yacht rock sound and it's beautiful like it's a beautiful performance when james taylor comes out and does his solo set he looks like Charlie Manson, but sounds like every AM radio station you've ever right. heard. And there was um, the Doobie Brothers. The Doobie Brothers. And then the thing that ultimately you have to see this film for, if you're interested, is Springsteen. This is this is the first time anybody filmed Springsteen. And he is young and he has something to fucking prove. And when he hits that stage and does the river and Thunder Road and quarter to three, he demolishes it is an unbelievable performance by him because he was already on the ascent at that yeah. era in 1980 he was already on his way up or if not very popular on his way to becoming iconic and uh 1980 through like 85 is when he really skyrocketed yeah and, and they, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff where you have celebrities sitting around and talking politics and it's as silly as it sounds and they're very sincere and they mean well and their concern as citizens is very apparent but you cannot help but laugh at at some of this and Graham Nash in particular god bless him should probably never ever be a spokesman for anything um <laughs> it's really scary and uh the uh, the last thing I will say is there is at the end of this, everybody comes out together and plays taking it to the streets with the Doobie Brothers. And 
when they all hit that stage together, it is every 70s white rock legend, and they white the shit out of that song, and it is something else. I think that kind of sums no, no nukes up. It is a earnest, earnest record of that moment in California politic sort of rock and roll overlap. All right. Our next film comes from a director I, that I know Drew and I both adore. Some film fans and some critics dismiss him or consider him highly inconsistent. And they're wrong. Boom. <laughs> Where, yeah, not everything that Brian De Palma has made has been, you know, a five-star classic. But even his worst films are probably, maybe not The Black Dahlia, sorry, Brian, uh, but are worth checking out. And Dressed to Kill is not only not one of his worst, it's also one of his best. Brian De Palma invites you to a showing of the latest fashion in murder. Dressed to Kill. Doctor, I am not paranoid. Bobby has threatened me over the phone. She said she was going to hurt me. My patient was slashed to death and my razor's gone. There's all kinds of ways to get killed in this city, if you're looking for it. Dressed to kill. Murder. Made to order. Rated R. If we think of Suspiria as peak Argento, where it's Argento crystallized, this is peak De Palma. Yeah. He is never more Brian De Palma than he is with this movie. Uh... Yeah, okay, I'll give you that. I would say that Body Double is even more Brian De Palma, but... I think this one's prettier. Yeah, oh, you yeah, know, it's a better film. It's a better film, and it obviously made more money and, and was more well-received, but I, I think Body Double is, like, the prototypical Brian De Palma movie. That's just it's, me. Did you see the documentary that came out this year, The No Obama? I have not oh. seen it yet! Oh, it's so good. <laughs> I know, it's so I good. It. And it's all it is is him going through every film and talking about where they came from and... Oh, that's exactly what I want! I want to see one of those from every director I can think of. I would kill to see a documentary where we sit down with John Carpenter and talk about Dark Star for 15 yeah. minutes and then move on to the next and the next and the next. Yeah, and that's all it is. And one of the things that I didn't realize, because I've always thought of this as part vertigo, part psycho. Yeah. Like, he just took those and married them. But I didn't realize that there's a lot of this that is also fairly autobiographical. When he was a young man, he followed his father to where his father was having an affair, and he took pictures of it. So... He's very much the Keith Gordon character here who is watching his parents' marriage implode and who's spying on them because he's trying to sort it out and, and work through things. So it's, in some ways, a very sincere film. But at the same time, man, he is playing and he is having so much fun. I love Michael Caine in this movie. And I know when we disagreed about the island, part of it is I just didn't think he fit in the island. Like, he's so passive and he doesn't do anything. I love him here. He is a nut in this movie. Michael Caine, you generally consider as a very stately, refined, respectable, uh, you know, grown-up dad of an actor who you wouldn't expect to sl suddenly slip into deviant behavior and, and, and evil slime. And this is the first time that you were like, whoa, Michael Caine can freak me out. For all the complaints that people will make about De Palma's obsession or love for uh, Hitchcock and his visual sense and the way he would play with suspense, 
I consider films like Dress to Kill, Carrie, and and Body Double three of the biggest compliments you could pay a filmmaker. I mean, well, I, the way he explained it, and I thought this was really beautiful, is he considered Hitchcock a genre, and he said, "Why should the genre end just because he's done?" I love that genre. Of course, I want to make movies in that genre. I that's what made me want to make movies. So. It's to him, it is an extension of what this filmmaker did. And of course, he's going to build on that and play with it. I got to say this, man, because I I hate the rap that Nancy Allen gets. I've heard it before. I've heard bad actress. I've heard, oh, she was married to De Palma. And that's why she does films. I'm going to say this over and over as we do this podcast. Nancy Allen does not get enough credit. Nope. Nancy Allen is a fine actor. She uh, is funny. She is totally in on the joke. I think she's a very smart performer who plays dumb like a dream. This might be her best performance. This and Blowout, to me, are the two where, where she is so, so good. And I, I love that she can go from hot to hilarious to hot, and she knows exactly what she's doing. I don't understand the people who knock her, and I think part of it was because she was married to De Palma. It was easy to make that, that leap. But I love the way he uses actors. I love that Dennis Franz shows up over and over. And I love that he found Keith Gordon in home movies and then used him here. Because, dude, Keith Gordon is one of my favorite 80s nerds. Turned out to be a damn good director, too. Oh, phenomenal filmmaker. But just as an 80s nerd, he got it right. He knew how to make it very vulnerable and real and not just a joke. And the thing that's interesting in this film is it feels genuinely dirty. Yeah, no, it's not a safe thriller where you're like, oh, that girl got killed in the shower. Oh, well, that's all very, very clean and very... No, it, it is a very mainstream movie in some ways and that occasionally dips into disturbing and depraved moments that, that like... And then De Palma pulls back and says, oh, yeah, now we're back in a safe movie area again. But there's, you know, there's three or four moments in this movie that are legitimately disturbing. It's one of the strengths of what De Palma does is because he takes it seriously when he gets to that violence and because he makes the film feel so seedy and dangerous, those scenes are harrowing at a time where we were starting to get used to extreme gore. It was easy to get numb to that stuff. You can't be numb during this movie. Uh, Speaking of horror films, I have seen this movie several times. Drew and I watched it last week when I was in L.A. Uh, It is a... Canadian slasher starring Jamie Lee Curtis and Leslie Nielsen called Prom Night. These are the girls of Hamilton High. Tonight they'll be more beautiful than ever before in their lives. Because tonight is prom night. And someone will come to the prom alone just to watch them dance, to see them fall in love, to see them die. Prom Night. If you're not back by midnight, you won't be coming home. Rated R. Look, first, let's give it up for the title. It's a great title. And, and I, dude, let's sing, the, let's sing the disco song that plays for an hour at the end of this movie. Prom night. Boom, 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 boom. And talking about prom night. Ah, ah, it's gonna be all right. No, it's not. Cause someone just got decapitated into prom night. What? What? <laughs> Holy crap. And they and they play that song, I think, for 35 straight minutes. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I even as a kid, I knew the difference between the slow burn of Halloween 
and the slow burn of prom night. I could not have articulated it. I could not have explained that in Halloween, the characters are much more well-written, and the world they live in has a real texture and a real smell and a real vibe to it, and that you're getting slowly entrenched in this adorable little neighborhood. And then when the horror finally strikes, you like this neighborhood. You feel safe. You care about these girls. With prom night, it kind of goes through all those motions, but... You just don't care about the characters. You don't care about the setting. You don't care about their impending prom night. Basically, it opens with uh, some some young kids, and there's a terrible accident. One of the kids is killed, and then we flash forward to six years later, and all the kids are now getting ready for their senior prom. And you'll never guess who the killer is ever unless you've seen a movie before. Right. It's one of the many, many um, slashers that tried to be a half-baked whodunit, which I suppose would give them, like, a little layer of legitimacy of, oh, our movie's not about carnage and blood, it's a whodunit. Well, it's about, there's a real divide in the in the slasher genre as to whether or not you like the whodunit version. I personally don't give a shit. I, I don't need a... Yeah, I don't need the whodunit, and I think most of the time it leads to movies like this where when they finally get to the Scooby-Doo ending, the audience is so far ahead of it, and I'm sorry... The dimmest audience is going to be so far ahead of this film. By the time a couple of kids are, the kids are killed, there's literally two people it could be. <laughs> literally. And this was obviously, look, they, they cast Jimmy Lee Curtis because of Halloween, and everybody was trying to figure out how to exploit her. We'll, we've already talked a little bit about Terror Train, which is another film that clearly cast her because of Halloween, but actually pulls it off. This is that that case where the only thing it has going for it is she's in it and it has a good title. And neither one of those things uh, you, pays would off. You even, would you would you even recommend it to horror fans for some of the like Act Three horror angle? Not, not really, because I think it's so pedestrian in the way it's shot. And there's no gore. It's not a gore film at all. No, no, but I mean that's neither here nor there. It doesn't movie doesn't it doesn't need I, I, gore. For for me, if I'm going to watch an '80s slasher film, part of the appeal is going to be I want to see who the makeup guy is and I want to see what he does. I think that's the fun. I don't think there's anything here because to me the suspense doesn't work at all. Yeah, it feels like a movie that I should call a cult classic or a or a small classic of the genre, but it's not. Like, if you're a Jamie Lee Curtis completist, or if you're dying to see Leslie Nielsen be completely stone-faced, and you're waiting the whole time for him to make a Pratt ball, but he never does, then, yeah, maybe see Prom Night, but I, I, I thought it was meh as a kid, and I, I now, I'm, unfortunately, I think it's even worse as a grown-up. Okay, we're going to go from one pretty bad film to a movie that I... Sure, wait, we need to come up with a new heading called, I Swear This Was a Movie. Yeah. Because in most cases, you'd be like, oh, prom night, oh, a war movie, oh, a comedy. But when you're talking about a movie in which a very popular comedian is transformed, dies in the, in the line of duty, and is brought back to life as a very popular dog actor, we need to point it out. But then again, we got the same exact story this year with Kevin Spacey and a cat. This, this was a real movie. Ladies and gentlemen, next up, Oh Heavenly Dog. Chevy Chase is Benjamin Browning, a struggling private eye who's about to embark on the strangest case of his career. What can I do for you? But before he can track down the clues, the witnesses, the evidence, or the suspects, there's some good news and some bad news. The good news is... Call me on Friday. He's going to make a date. Call you Friday. The bad news is he's going to be late. In 
incredibly enough, there's more news. Wait a minute, those are animals. I'm not going back as an animal. And now, hello, he's back. Maybe you remember me. I was killed here. Somewhat shorter. I need a clue. But wiser. A pair of hands. With 48 wild and woolly hours to solve his own murder or die again trying. 20th Century Fox presents. I'm sorry, Mr. Browning. I didn't mean to startle you. Chevy Chase. Jane Seymour. How about if I just call you BJ for short? You're asking for it. And Benji. Hello. In an adult tale of murder, mystery, and forbidden love. Oh, Heavenly Dog. Here's the thing about Oh, Heavenly Dog that blows my mind, having just rewatched it. First of all, I've got to assume part of the appeal was Heaven Can Wait, which was such a huge cultural hit just a few years earlier. And the idea of coming back and you're going through your life a second time and you're trying to fix things. There's some there's some appeal there. And Joe Camp obviously had huge success with Benji and was trying to figure out what else he could do with the Benji brand. What else? What other kinds of movies can Benji make? And can we treat him as an actor who shows up in movies and not as a character? I, I get all of that. And I even get the idea of, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we took one of the hippest comics right now and we put him over this family friendly dog and wouldn't that be an inter- no it's not not at all and in fact chevy chase sounds embarrassed for most of it and when he does actually physically show up in the movie you can see him checking his watch to see if he's finished with his part of the movie yet he wants out desperately uh, chevy chase you know uh, for every fletch or vacation you'd have a, a six or seven terrible films i hate to say it because i love chevy chase but in, especially throughout the early to mid 80s the guy churned out so many bad movies we will get to some good ones i love i love seems like old times i love foul play but then we're also going to get to like modern problems and deal of the century and either the guy was just willing to work do anything for a paycheck or he just didn't know how to read scripts. Well, and that's the thing is you look this month, we've got Caddyshack and Oh Heavenly Dog in the same month. And the fact that those shared theater screens, for God's sake, is so insane. Oh Heavenly Dog, the biggest problem with the movie is it is enormously complicated. I just rewatched it. And that mystery plot, Agatha Christie would go, OK, I can somebody get a fucking chart out because I need it's an insane mystery. Joe Camp is not what I would call a very good filmmaker overall i think he knew how to get the dog to perform he can get the dog to do almost anything the dog dials the phone in one scene oh my god the dog dialed a phone but it's still in the middle of this insanely terrible film with jane seymour having to do all the heavy lifting to try and make scenes with this dog work oh god does she deserve better god damn and of course, this being a pg movie in the 80s there's a scene where jane seymour gets essentially naked and then goes to get in a bathtub, which the dog joins her in because Chevy Chase is horny. And at that point, if you're not running for the door, something's wrong with you. It's just wrong on so many levels. And if I'm a comedian who's coming off a year of Saturday Night Live and everybody's offering me a script, maybe don't accept everyone. Okay. <laughs> you know? Co- cocaine. Yeah, cocaine, no doubt. Our next film is a... <laughs> uh, our next film, Drew, is a semi-autobiographical would you say? Yeah, yeah I'd uh, say it's, it's definitely, it's very observant and honest. Country, Western uh, drama, light drama, domestic drama, yep. starring Willie Nelson, Diane Cannon, and a young Amy Irving, uh, and it's called Honeysuckle Rose. On the road again 
to get on the road again. Wife, I love is making music with my friends. And I can't wait to get on the road again. You know, it's funny. The thing that is obviously most recognizable about this film is the theme song, On the Road Again. I don't know why they didn't just call it On the Road Again, although maybe Jack Kerouac would have sued. I don't know. And here's the thing. How many movies from 36 years ago have their theme song pretty much in daily rotation in pop culture? I'm pretty sure there's two or three ad campaigns right now that use the damn song. So you hear it every day if you have any sort of access to, to the world. How, how much weirder is it that we see a, um, a Willie Nelson film that's over two hours long in which he never smokes marijuana once? Let's, look, the movie is about really what, what it's like to be a a performer who's on the road and who is constantly dealing with the push and pull of family. And he's married to Diane Cannon. He's got a son. And clearly when he's home, he's, he loves it. It's, it's very special. And Jerry Schatzberg, who directed it does a nice job of getting the little observational stuff, right? So his home life is really appealing and life on the road is really interesting. And he, he does a lot with this sort of how fun it is and how exhausting it is. Um, but it is weird that he shows all the drinking. He shows how difficult things are. He shows the toll it takes on families. And there's no marijuana at all, considering it's Willie Nelson. Uh, and he's a very charming performer, very understated and, and likable and honest on the screen. Um, Diane Cannon and Amy Irving, both great. There's some very good uh, supporting performances by uh, Slim Pickens and uh, Lane Smith. It's an amiable film. The plot is, you know... Does is he going to go on the road and cheat on his wife with the ingenue, or is he not? And then it, it you know, it's, it plays out very much like a conventional country western song. But I think that was the intent. I liked it. I, uh, I, it's one of those movies you kind of put it on and you soak in it if you're interested in it. Yeah, yeah. If you're not interested in the world, you're you're probably not going to get much out of it. But I think it is well made enough and honest enough that it feels like you get to dip into the world that Willie Nelson probably lived in for real. Yeah, I, I not my kind of movie, but Drew and I watched it together last week, and we were both pleasantly surprised by uh, very simple the story is. We knew exactly where it was going, but we certainly were both uh, entranced by wh- how it was going to get there. All right. So next up, we're going to do a movie that I, uh, I it's hard not to be fond of this film. I am fond of all three of the first movies, these three films these guys made together first. And this is the one right in the middle. So we're going to talk right now about Cheech and Chong's next movie. Is it a love story? Is it a thriller? Is it a foreign film? I think you're Iranian. Is it an alien attack? Wow. Is it a cartoon? No! It's Cheech and Chong's next movie. Because at a time like this, what everybody really needs is a good laugh. Cheech and Chong's next movie. This is one that uh, I got. I, I came to Cheech and Chong long before I was a marijuana smoker, and uh, basically everything that the young me learned about weed was from these guys. And basically, what I got from these guys was um, it made you little sleepy, little slow, very hungry, and um, funny as shit. Like I honestly grew up thinking that marijuana made you funny because Cheech and Chong were funny. Uh, I love Up in Smoke. Next movie is a bit more piecemeal, scattershot, all over the place, but still good energy. Still, they still have plenty of good material. Um, nice Dreams, not a fan of, but I could, I could get through that. It's after Nice Dreams that the fucking wheels came off. There's a lot about this I like. The th- first thing that I don't like, though, Up in Smoke is Scope. Up in Smoke is a really pretty movie. It's a really nicely made film by Gil Adler. 
Tommy Chong directed this one. It's flat and it's basically shot square and it is not a very pretty movie. And it's and it feels a lot more held together by scotch tape. What it has going for it, though, is it was made at a point where the groundlings just had this ridiculous bench of people that they had uh, sort of connected to them. And they're all in this movie somewhere, including the very first film appearance of Pee Wee Herman. Paul Rubens. Yeah, but as Pee Wee Herman. And that's what I love. It's the fact that we get to see him as the hotel clerk. And then later we see that the clerk's night gig is he's a comedian and he is Pee Wee Herman. Yeah. Uh, whereas Up in Smoke stands as a like surprised people because Up in Smoke was, oh, it's just a vehicle for these pot comedians. And then when it turned out to be a fairly well-made, well-structured farce, it's almost like they said, all right, let's bang out another one as quickly as possible. And next movie is pretty ramshackle. Like, speaking of Pee-wee, it does play kind of like Pee-wee's Big Adventure, where it's just on the road, stopping along the way, and here's an episode, and here's a sketch, and here's a famous comedian cameo. That's the thing. They're, they're totally not famous. Yeah. These are just comics who were working, who they knew were really funny. Like, Cassandra Peterson is one scene. Yeah, She's in a scene with young Rita Wilson, and the two of them are adorable and very funny in the Help Me Wamba scene where John Paragon, who played Jombie on Pee Wee's Playhouse, shows up in that scene along with Jake Steinfeld. Um, Why don't you uh, tell our listeners why some video stores used to put this movie in the sci-fi section? The first time I heard about this movie, I had seen Up in Smoke on cable, but that same Starlog issue that I mentioned that had the Empire Strikes Back cover had a story about Universal's new genre summer and how Universal was going to be really big in a science fiction in the year 1980. And the movies they covered were the nude bomb, which, boy, you want to talk about stretching to call that a science fiction film. That's ridiculous. Flash Gordon, which, OK, that's a science fiction movie. And Cheech and Chong's next movie. And it's because at the very end of the film, there's a scene where a UFO picks up Chong and uh, Cheech's cousin Red, also played by Cheech, uh, out of a pot field and abducts them. And then when they show up later, they've been to outer space and they have a bag of space coke. And so that alone qualified it as science fiction, according to some people. Yeah, uh, I I would firmly recommend the first two. Third one, again, it's just diminishing returns each time. You know, Up in Smoke was a legitimately funny surprisingly well-written comedy. Next movie was kind of a compilation of maybe some of the best bits from their album and material they hadn't used before, and it's all strung together. Nice Dreams is a couple of good jokes in a pretty dire affair. Then I think after that they did Things Are Tough All Over. And then Still Smoking is still one of the worst movies I think I've ever seen. Well, and the Corsican Brothers is in there somewhere, which is awful. But this, the, the things to look for in this, look for Michael Winslow, who shows up, and this is pre-Police Academy, and the uh, the noise, the whole sound effect thing he does is actually presented as kind of terrifying here, which makes more sense than the ha-ha, isn't he cute version from Police Academy. I also love Edie McClurg, who everybody loves so much from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. She is awesome in the second, like the last third of this film. Uh, that's the thing to look for is individual sequences, whether it's them stealing gas in a garbage can or trying to drive a bottle of pee to Chong's probation officer. Individual bits work really well. Uh, the next film is uh, by Robert Zemeckis that I- I'm just going to say I was obsessed with this movie growing up and I will let Drew introduce it. Well, this is this is my favorite comedy from July of 1980, which is crazy considering what else came out this month. I adore used cars meet car dealer royale fuchs dishonest 
disreputable, disgraceful. He's the bad guy. Across the street, his competitor, Rudy Russo, dishonest, disreputable, disgraceful. He's the good guy. Walking into the middle of it is Barbara Fuchs. Moral, decent, honest. She's got a lot to learn. Used cars. Here's the thing, man. This is, for me, where I fell in love with Zemeckis and Gale. Because Back to the Future is a bigger film, certainly. But that was a confirmation of what I loved about this movie, which is these guys had an unbelievable precision about the way they wrote comedy. And I feel like the script for 1941, which... That script is what got them in front of Steven Spielberg. Spielberg and John Milius were co-producers on this film. And the reason this film got made by Columbia was because Universal didn't want to make it. And Columbia was making 1941 and figured, holy shit, we're in the Zemeckis scale business. Great. And they let Zemeckis direct. And to me, this is a perfect example of what they do, which is they build these Things where they get bigger and bigger and bigger as they go and funnier and funnier and funnier. And they build these climaxes where everything has its place. And it's just clockwork as everything comes together. To those together. who might not have seen it, Used Cars is basically about uh, two brothers, both played by Jack Warden. They both own a used car lot uh, on opposite sides of the street. And they are warring against each other in every cartoonish way possible. Uh, including, like, money on a freaking fish hook, <laughs> like that kind of cute humor, and then one of the Jack Warden brothers passes away, and then his staff, run by um, Kurt Russell and Garrett Graham and Frank McRae, uh, now they have to take over uh, and and keep his death um, a, uh, a secret from his daughter, who is snooping around, and his brother from across the street, There's so and also Kurt Russell is running for local office, and all of his, uh, Garrett Graham has his own issues, and McRae, and there's a great dog, and oh man, Used Cars is such a freaking ball, I am jealous of anybody who has not seen Used Cars, and hears our voice, and goes and watches it tonight. One of, the, one of the things that's amazing about this movie is watching Kurt Russell become Kurt, Kurt, Kurt fucking Kurt, Russell in this movie. Because until this point, all the way up until this movie, he was still somewhat the Disney yeah, kid. Yeah, yeah. And this is him burning that shit to the ground. It is over after this. Five years before this, he was doing the strongest man in the world for Disney. Just five years Four years before this, he was still contracted to them. It's not a coincidence that a, a, a Disney actor is now not only doing a, 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 an R-rated comedy, but one that's gleefully vulgar. And and that's, oh, it is yeah. it is blisteringly R-rated. This is a movie that loves the rating, wears the waiting the rating proudly. Um, what I love about Garrett Graham in this film, and he gives one of his two greatest performances well, here. He's such an underrated character actor. Oh, God, he is so great as a guy who is super superstitious. So he believes that every superstition is real. And in particular, he has a thing about red cars that becomes super important over the course of the film. By the time it comes up in Act 3, the audience is so invested. I've seen this with a crowd. And when he pulls that car over because he can't drive it and they are waiting on him, the audience is like, get in the car, get in the car. Uh, How do you build suspense out of that? That's what Zemeckis and Gale did. They built suspense out of ridiculous comedy. Oh, it's so much. Well, you you talk you talk about um, that moment where he pulls the car over and won't get back in. There is a stunt that Garrett Graham does in this film that is Buster Keaton level. Holy shit. How did he not die? And it is one of the great stunts I've ever seen anyone do in a movie. 
and Garrett Graham does it perfectly. It's Zemeckis and kind of Dante and kind of Spielberg and Pixar got really good at it too, which is comedy on a clock. It's not just, oh, ha, ha, this is a funny car chase. It's they got to get there in eight minutes. You know, it's that kind of all, go for broke, all the cast running down the street and jumping on each other and, you know, like crazy, crazy pratfalls and real energy. I... It would be one thing if it was a car chase between like one car and a bunch of cars chasing it. It's a car chase between about 300 yeah, cars. If I, if we got to sweeten the pot for you people, this movie ends with a car chase in which uh, Kurt Russell. It's a comic masterpiece. Yeah, Kurt Russell and his cohorts have to get, I think, 300 cars from uh, uh, Alfonso Aral out in the middle of the desert, uh, <laughs> who is great. And they have to get the cards from him to their lot before the judge, a.k.a. Grandpa Herman Munster, gets there to uh, measure how many cars they own. So it's like, it's such a rollicking, energetic, exciting, and it taps into like what John Landis did with the Blues Brothers. That same kind of, not just funny, but high energy funny. Everybody remembers the Back to the Future when they saw the first one and the whole thing was going on with Marty trying to get up to 88 miles per hour to go back and the lightning and Doc trying to get the thing. And that is everybody knows that it's that perfect. It just is the version that people don't know inside out because this film really got screwed. I remember when the ads in the paper came out and the first thing I saw was Kurt Russell, which interested me. And then there was Steven Spielberg's name. And that was enough for me to want to see it. But it got buried. This movie was a disaster when it came out, and it almost killed Zemeckis' career. Could you imagine that? That like I, I, I know people are in 1941. It has its history. I think it's a fun film. I know a lot of people don't like it, but and then used cars. So they both relatively bomb. 1941, not nearly as big a bomb as people make you think, and used cars, a legitimate bomb. Imagine like like you're looking at your career like, wow, I just wrote two movies I really liked and both of them bombed. And then he would still go on to become one of the most popular and celebrated directors. Ever. Well, and his earlier film, I Want to Hold yeah. Your Hand, also basically didn't get released properly. So he was, he was in trouble as a filmmaker. And this is the movie where he kind of hit the wall and made as good a movie as anybody can make. And it just didn't work. It just didn't get the release it should have. You know, I I look at this now and I know filmmakers, they worship this movie. They love this film and it means something deeply to them because of how beautifully made it is and how well it lands every joke. But it's one of those movies that because the reaction was so bad when it came out, it almost disappeared. Yeah, well, again, it happened to Kurt Russell and it'll happen to Kurt Russell again in 1982. Don't judge a film by how quickly it vanishes from theaters. You judge a film by uh, how well it stands up a couple years later. And I have seen used cars probably every three or four years since 1985, and it never gets old. I absolutely love it. Uh, And now our final film of the month is one of the most influential, popular, and drop-dead funniest American comedies you will ever see. Airplane. Fasten your seatbelts and get ready to laugh out loud. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Johnny, what do you make out of this? This? Why well, can make half? Leslie Nielsen and Robert Hayes had an all-star cast that take off on a hilarious flight. Watch out for Airplane. 
Simply put, it's one of the greatest comedies of all time. My main sticking point, whenever I talk to people about this movie, and it's because I had always to convince my sister when we were growing up, hey, at least would you go see this, uh, Top Secret? Would you go see Hot Shots? Uh, would you go, and she would, oh, that I don't like that kind of comedy. And then I would always say, you and I saw Airplane with Mom in 1980, and you laughed your damn ass off. And yet, throughout our childhood, she would never watch any of the other broad spoof movies, because that stuff was too silly. So it's like, even if you love these movies, a lot of people still, oh, that's just kid stuff, that's so silly. Airplane makes me laugh as much now as it ever did, even maybe even more. Because it has very silly stuff that kids will laugh at, but adults need silly stuff. Little kids get silly stuff all the time. A lot of cartoons are very silly, and kids' books and music and movies are very silly. But when you get older, you're kind of conditioned that, you know, silly, except in rare cases, silly is for, you know, children. Airplane is blissfully silly, and, and it is just so well made. It is a clear uh, attempt at rapid-fire jokes. If you don't like this joke, wait five seconds and you'll get another one. If I had to pick five or ten jokes in Airplane that don't fly, get it? Don't fly? Um, it's like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. I'd be, I'd be hard-pressed to find just like five or six that are just plain old bad. One of the most quotable comedies ever. Uh, one of the best ensembles ever. This movie ruined Leslie Nielsen, and it utterly changed his career forever. I love that Prom Night came out the same month as this, because you look at Prom Night, and that's how he was cast in every film he'd ever done before this. Leslie Nielsen was a straight-faced, super down-the-middle, white dude who just, that's what you cast him for. He was just the white face of authority. All I knew him from, and this was even barely, but I knew him as the captain from the Poseidon Adventure, and he's... On Forbidden Planet. Yeah, well, I didn't see Forbidden Planet when I was a kid, for some reason. Yeah. Okay, yeah. That was what I knew him from, man. Yeah, for me it was, oh my god, the captain from from Poseidon Adventure, but that vanished after the first time I saw Airplane, and he was just, you know, God bless him, he became the brilliant buffoon actor that he became. God bless Leslie Nielsen. I I have a love-hate relationship with what happened because I think in this movie, what makes him a genius is that he plays this exactly the way he plays everything else. Dead straight, no wink, 100% serious, and it makes all of the ridiculous material that much funnier. This is a giant performance. This is one of those performances that is perfect. Now, later on, he leaned into it, and I think Leslie Nielsen became very broad, and he mugged fiercely, and he became he became a guy that was way ahead of the joke, and I'm not as crazy about some of the later stuff. Yeah, it all depends on the filmmaker. The smart filmmakers like the, you know, like ZAZ and other people that he'd work with, they knew that he has to remain oblivious. If he winks, if he winks at the camera or, or makes a silly face, the joke is ruined. It, for me, the difference is Police Squad Leslie Nielsen and Naked Gun Leslie Nielsen. Naked Gun Leslie Nielsen's funny. It's okay. It's fine. Police Squad Leslie Nielsen is the funniest shit I've ever seen. And I think by the time they got to the movies, the Naked Gun movies are winking at you and hitting you in the ribs with the elbow. And they are so oppressively funny. Like they, they, they work so hard. I think Police Squad is that joke done perfectly. Yeah. I think Naked Gun is that joke done broadly. And that's the difference. One of the things that I'm looking forward to is at some point, Toshi's going to get because he loves this film. He's seen this film over and over. And at some point, he's going to be old enough for me to just one afternoon throw on zero hour and not say what it is. 
And I want to watch his head implode as he realizes it is exactly beat for beat airplane with no yeah, jokes. What a lot of people don't know is that, the, you know, mo- movies that are parodies or satires, you know, you're allowed to copy like Saturday Night Fever for a joke. Um, because the legal I- issue would be if you're trying to convince somebody else that your movie is Saturday Night Fever when it's not. And a satire clearly is not trying to convince anybody it's anything but a satire. But it cues so closely to Zero Hour that the studio had to buy the rights, or the brothers had to buy yeah. the rights to Zero Hour just to be safe. Oh, God, yeah, because, I mean, they quote it. There's the whole thing about, we just have to find someone on this plane who can not only land it, but who didn't have the fish. That's a line from fucking Zero Hour. What was it we had for dinner tonight? Well, the main course was meat or fish. Yes, yes, I remember I had meat. What was it we had for dinner tonight? Well, we had a choice, steak, fish. Yes, yes, I remember I had lasagna. No wonder they laughed their asses off. They must have known this is so ridiculous to begin with. And then they just layer stuff on top. You get Julie Haggerty, who her her performance comes in from outer space. She is so weird and so funny. Beautiful, breathy voice. And she's she looks kind of a little nervous and maybe a little dim. But I never really saw this character as dim. I just kind of saw her as skittish and a little nervous, uh, maybe sluggish like a wet sponge. And I absolutely love her voice, her demeanor, her timing. She is wonderful in this movie. Robert Hayes also has some great moments. Steven Stucker is the killer in this movie. He's a murderer. He comes in and just murders. Yeah, jokes and complete non sequiturs, and he just jumps off the screen and is just, what did I just see? What, what I love about Airplane, beyond just the movie itself, is that it, it more or less, there were broad satires before this, but Airplane pretty much in, invented this genre. And then it would, like I said, it would move on to... The Zucker Abrahams would go on to do other stuff like Top Secret and Hot Shots, Naked Gun. But then other people started getting into it, like your Spy Hearts and your Loaded Weapons. And then, of course, Mel Brooks, who truly originated this this stuff with Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles. Then he got back into it with Dracula Dead and Loving It and, and other stuff. And nowadays, unfortunately, the broad spoof satire has become like a... Um, what is it called when you wash your clothes and, and put it up on a, uh, a clothesline on which to hang just shitty pop culture references? That's what, like, epic movie and date movie have become 90 minutes of. It went deep with these guys. The casting of, uh, for example, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is because in Zero Hour, that pilot was played by a real-life football player. So they thought it was hilarious to cast a pro athlete who had no business being in a movie in a movie in that same role. That's a really weird joke. And that is not that is not ha ha. You'll get that no matter what. It just informs how weird the film is. And then there's that great moment where clearly they recognize that it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and he's pretending he's not. And that's hilarious uh, because suddenly the fourth wall is shattered it's so hard to explain to somebody who didn't see airplane theatrically how different it felt because while yes, blazing saddles and young Frankenstein are both great spoof parody films. The pace is totally different. This was paced in a way that I don't think I'd ever seen a film paced like this. And I don't think anybody else had either. When you saw this in a theater, there was just this wave of laughter that would start and then never stop for the entire film. There was never a point where everybody calmed down. People were constantly laughing. And at the end of it, people looked like they'd been beaten up. It was amazing to go see this in a theater with a full house. And it played for like a year solid. And every time I, I managed to get somebody to go back and it was their first time, 
just watching them react to it was the joy of going back because it would flatten them. They'd never experienced anything yeah, like it. It's great because real silly humor anybody can get. And it, most people can get really silly humor. And then they would escalate that from like, all right, here's normal silly. Now we're going to get a little sly. And this one might be for the people who read newspapers. And now we're going to get real goofy. Here's, a, you know, and it would just, it would, there, even within the silliness of airplane, there's a scale of, of how silly and how insightful a joke is. And it just, it just kills me every time I see it. I'm still convinced that movies like airplane will still have a place in the world. All right. So next time, we are going to come back with August of 1980. We're going to be talking about a time travel movie. We're going to have the final film of one of the great comic actors of all time. We're going to have a Stanley Donan musical, a Jackie Chan film, another John Sayles exploitation movie. Oh, my God. There's so much. I can't wait. Guys, as always, thank you for tuning in. Scott, it has been a pleasure to go over July of 1980 with you, and we will check you guys next time. Mm-hmm.